Chapter 14 of Recollections of Abraham Lincoln, 1847 through 1865, by Ward Hill Lemon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 14 His Magnanimity. Mr. Lincoln regarded all public offices within his gift as a sacred trust to be administered solely for the people, and as in no sense a fund upon which he could draw for the payment of private accounts. He was exempt from the frailties common to most men, and he cast aside the remembrance of all provocations for which he had cause to nourish resentment. Here is a notable instance. A rather distinguished man had been for years a respected acquaintance. His son, who was in the army, was convicted of a grave offense, the penalty of which might have been death. Lincoln, at the solicitation of the father, pardoned the son. Time passed on until the political campaign of 1864, when a secret military organization was formed in the state of Illinois to oppose the re-election of Lincoln, and that father was at the head of this secret organization. Sometime after the election, the filling of an important bureau office in the Treasury Department was under advisement. Among the applicants was an old acquaintance of Mr. Lincoln, who was strongly recommended by his friends. After a pause, Mr. Lincoln thoughtfully said, "'Well, gentlemen, whatever you may think, I never thought Mr. Blank Blank had any more than an average amount of ability when we were young men together. I really didn't.' And then, after a short silence, he added, "'But this is a matter of opinion, and I suppose he thought just the same about me.' he had reason to, and here I am. I guess we shall have to give him some good place, but not this one. This position requires a man of peculiar ability to fill it. I have been thinking seriously of giving it to a man who does not like me very well, and who sought to defeat my renomination. I can't afford to take notice of and punish every person who has seen fit to oppose my election, we want a competent man for this place. I know of no one who could perform the duties of this most responsible office better than blank blank, calling him by name. And this ingrate father got the appointment. At another time there was an interview at the White House between a prominent politician of New York and Mr. Lincoln in reference to the removal of an officeholder in New York. Every reason that could be thought of was urged in favor of the removal, and finally it was urged that this office-holder abused Mr. Lincoln personally. Mr. Lincoln at last got out of patience, and ended the interview as follows. "'You cannot think—to be half as mean to me as I know him to be. But I cannot run this thing upon the theory that every office-holder must think I am the greatest man in the nation, and I will not.' The man named— notwithstanding his meanness to Mr. Lincoln, remained in office as long as Mr. Lincoln was president. So much of Mr. Lincoln's time was taken up with questions of office-seeking and office-holding, when he felt every moment should be devoted to plans to avert the perils then threatening the country, that he once compared himself to a man so busy in letting rooms in one end of his house that he cannot stop to put out the fire that is burning the other. Mr. Lincoln was an ambitious man, but he desired power less for the sake of prestige or authority 
than for the opportunities it presented of being useful and beneficent in its exercise eagerly as he sought the approval of his fellow-citizens where this could be attained without the sacrifice of principle he was always generous in according to others whatever would lead to public approval immediately after the battle of gettysburg mr lincoln sat down and wrote a peremptory order to general meade to intercept lee in his retreat give him battle and by this bold stroke crush the rebel army and end the rebellion the order was accompanied by a friendly note in which the great patriot said to meade the order i enclose is not of record if you succeed you need not publish the order if you fail publish it then if you succeed you will have all the credit of the movement if not i'll take the responsibility the manifestation of popular admiration and esteem as the people's choice for the highest position within their gift mr lincoln most highly valued while his self-reliance and his amour propre led him at times to look upon favors bestowed upon him as a matter of personal right as a consideration due to himself individually with all this his love of country was his paramount incentive there was no period in the progress of the war at which he would not willingly have laid down his life if by so doing he could have averted further bloodshed and remanded his fellow-countrymen to the enjoyment of a restored tranquillity and renewed brotherhood one instance in which this sentiment led him to propose an extraordinary act of self-immolation is deserving a special mention mr lincoln ardently desired on the return of peace to exercise his functions as chief magistrate of a reunited country this with the reconstruction of the general government was the darling aspiration of his heart the dearest heritage which the advent of peace could bestow but he subjected this ambition to the promptings of a roman patriotism and proposed upon certain conditions a frank full and honest renunciation of all claims to the presidency for a second term and in declining under any circumstances to be a candidate for re-election he would cordially throw his entire influence in so far as he could control it in behalf of horatio seymour then governor of new york for president the conditions were substantially as follows governor seymour was to withdraw his opposition to the draft use his authority and influence as governor in putting down the riots in new york and cooperate in all reasonable ways with the administration in the suppression of the southern rebellion this proposition was to be made through mr thurlow weed it so happened that at this time mr weed was dissatisfied with the president for something he had either done or omitted to do and had on several occasions refused to come to washington when his presence was earnestly desired there he must now be seen and advised with he must personally effect the negotiation for he could accomplish it more successfully than any other man how to induce him to come to washington was the question to be solved the tinkling of mr seward's little bell had struck terror to the souls of evil-doers in the north and all his dispatches over the wires were narrowly watched it was inexpedient for him to use telegraphic facilities of communication except upon the most commonplace subjects since everything emanating from him was eagerly scanned and devoured by the quidnuncs throughout the country a special messenger was therefore decided on 
for affairs were now in a precarious condition and daily hourly growing worse and time was important the messenger started immediately for new york but was recalled before reaching the train he was thereupon directed to telegraph in his own name to mr weed and that gentleman arrived in washington by the next succeeding train after a lengthy interview with the president and mr seward mr weed telegraphed to governor seymour requesting him to come to washington on business of urgent importance this the governor declined to do adding in his reply that the distance to and from washington and albany was precisely the same and that if they wanted to confer with him to come to albany where he would be glad to meet them mr weed upon this left for that city and after making a very brief stay there returned to washington and reported proposition declined this answer was not expected by mr lincoln especially in time of civil war and from the governor of the great influential state of new york and it was with sincere and manifest chagrin that the president saw himself deterred from making the magnanimous self-sacrifice proposed nothing that affected the interests of the government escaped mr lincoln's vigilant thought and careful consideration i recollect that on one occasion just after the greenback currency got under full headway of circulation i was in his office when the conversation turned on the condition of our finances and on the greenback as a representative of money he was in high spirits that day and seemed to feel happier than i had seen him for a long time i casually asked him if he knew how our currency was made yes said he i think it is about as the lawyers would say in the following manner to wit the engraver strikes off the sheets passes them over to the register of the currency who places his earmarks upon them signs them hands them over to father spinner who then places his wonderful signature at the bottom and turns them over to mr chase who as secretary of the united states treasury issues them to the public as money and may the good lord help any fellow that doesn't take all he can honestly get of them taking from his pocket a five-dollar greenback with a twinkle of his eye he said look at spinner's signature was there ever anything like it on earth yet it is unmistakable no one will ever be able to counterfeit it but i said you certainly don't suppose that spinner actually wrote his name on that bill do you certainly i do why not i then asked how much of this currency have we afloat he remained thoughtful for a moment and then stated the amount i continued how many times do you think a man can write a signature like spinner's in the course of twenty-four hours the beam of hilarity left his countenance at once he put the green back into his vest pocket and walked the floor after a while he stopped heaved a long breath and said this thing frightens me he then rang for a messenger and told him to ask the secretary of the treasury to please come over to see him mr chase soon put in an appearance mr lincoln stated the cause of his alarm and asked mr chase to explain in detail the modus operandi the system of checks in his office etc and a lengthy discussion followed lincoln contending that there were not sufficient checks to afford any degree of safety in the money-making department and mr chase insisting that all the guards for protection were afforded that he could devise in the nature of things he said 
Somebody must be trusted in this emergency. You have entrusted me, and Mr. Spinner is entrusted with untold millions, and we have to trust our subordinates. Words waxed warmer than I had ever known them to do between these distinguished gentlemen, when Mr. Lincoln feelingly apologized by saying, Don't think I am doubting or could doubt your integrity or that of Mr. Spinner, nor am I finding fault with either of you, but it strikes me that this thing is all wrong and dangerous. I and the country know you and Mr. Spinner, but we don't know your subordinates, who are great factors in making this money, and have the power to bankrupt the government in an hour. Yet there seems to be no protection against a duplicate issue of every bill struck, and I can see no way of detecting duplicity until we come to redeem the currency, and even then the duplicate cannot be told from the original. The result of this conversation was that Lincoln became so impressed with danger from this source that he called the attention of Congress to the matter, and a joint committee was appointed. Senator Sprague of Rhode Island was its chairman, but the result of the investigation, like many others during the war, was never made public to my knowledge. Considering the crippled financial condition of our country and the importance of first-class credit abroad during our war, as little publicity on the subject as possible was doubtless the best for us politically. Apropos of greenbacks, Don Piatt gave a description in the North American Review a few years ago of the first proposition to Mr. Lincoln to issue interest-bearing notes as currency, which was as follows. Massa Walker, a distinguished financier of New England, suggested that notes issued directly from the government to the people as currency should bear interest, this for the purpose not only of making the notes popular, but for the purpose of preventing inflation, by inducing people to hoard the notes as an investment when the demands of trade would fail to call them into circulation as a currency. This idea struck David Taylor of Ohio with such force that he sought Mr. Lincoln and urged him to put the project into immediate execution. The president listened patiently and at the end said, "'That is a good idea, Taylor, but you must go to Chase. He is running that end of the machine and has time to consider your proposition.' Taylor sought the Secretary of the Treasury and laid before him Amasa Walker's plan. Chase heard him through in a cold, unpleasant manner and then said, that is all very well, Mr. Taylor, but there is one little obstacle in the way that makes the plan impracticable, and that is the Constitution. Saying this, he turned to his desk as if dismissing both Mr. Taylor and his proposition at the same moment. The poor enthusiast felt rebuked and humiliated. He returned to the President, however, and reported his defeat. Mr. Lincoln looked at the would-be financier with the expression at times so peculiar to his homely face that left one in doubt whether he was jesting or in earnest. "'Taylor!' he exclaimed. "'Go back to Chase and tell him not to bother himself about the Constitution. Say that I have that sacred instrument here at the White House, and I am guarding it with great care.' Taylor demurred to this on the ground that Mr. Chase showed by his manner that he knew all about it, and didn't wish to be bored by any suggestion. "'We'll see about that,' said the President, 
and, taking a card from the table, he wrote upon it, The Secretary of the Treasury will please consider Mr. Taylor's proposition. We must have money, and I think this a good way to get it. A. Lincoln. Armed with this, the real father of the Greenbacks again sought the Secretary. He was received more politely than before, but was cut short in his advocacy of the measure by a proposition for both of them to see the President. They did so, and Mr. Chase made a long and elaborate constitutional argument against the proposed measure. Chase, said Mr. Lincoln, after the secretary had concluded, down in Illinois I was held to be a pretty good lawyer, and I believe I could answer every point you have made, but I don't feel called upon to do it. These rebels are violating the Constitution to destroy the Union. I will violate the constitution if necessary to save the union and i suspect chase that our constitution is going to have a rough time of it before we get done with this row now what i want to know is whether constitution aside this project of issuing interest-bearing notes is a good one i must say responded mr chase that with the exception you make it is not only a good one but the only one open to us to raise money. If you say so, I will do my best to put it into immediate and practical operation, and you will never hear from me any opposition on this subject. Mr. Lincoln acquired the name of Honest Abe Lincoln by a kind of honesty much higher than that which restrains a man from the appropriation of his neighbor's goods. He did not feel at liberty to take every case that was offered him, he was once overheard saying to a man who was consulting him and earnestly urging his legal rights, Yes, I can gain your suit. I can set a neighborhood at loggerheads. I can distress a widowed mother and six fatherless children and get for you six hundred dollars, to which, for all I can see, she has as good a right as you have. But I will not do so there are some legal rights which are moral wrongs mr lincoln at no time in his life could tolerate anything like persecution his whole nature appeared to rebel against any appearance of such a thing and he never failed to act in the promptest manner when any such case was brought to his attention one of the most celebrated cases ever tried by any court-martial during the war was that of franklin w smith and his brother charged with defrauding the government these men bore a high character for integrity at this time however courts-martial were seldom invoked for any other purpose than to convict the accused regardless of the facts in the case and the smiths shared the usual fate of persons whose charges were submitted to such an arbitrament they had been kept in prison their papers seized their business destroyed and their reputation ruined all which was followed by a conviction after the judgment of the court the matter was submitted to the president for his approval the case was such a remarkable one and was regarded as so monstrous in its unjust and unwarrantable conclusion that mr lincoln after a full and careful investigation of it annulled the whole proceeding it is very remarkable that the record of the president's decision could never be found afterward in the navy department no exact copy can be obtained of it 
Some one in the office, however, familiar with the tenor and effect of it, furnished its wording as nearly as possible. The following embraces the sentiment, if not the exact words, of that remarkable document. Whereas Franklin W. Smith had transactions with the Navy Department to the amount of a million and a quarter of dollars, and whereas he had a chance to steal at least a quarter of a million and was only charged with stealing twenty-two hundred dollars, and the question now is about his stealing one hundred, I don't believe he stole anything at all. Therefore, the record and the findings are disapproved, declared null and void, and the defendants are fully discharged. In 1862, Senator Sherman had prepared a very elaborate speech in which he devoted a good portion of it to prove that Mr. Lincoln was a failure, and unless something was soon done by Congress, the war would be a failure. Someone told Mr. Lincoln that Senator Sherman intended to make such a speech. Lincoln said, Well, Sherman is a patriot and a statesman and is thoroughly for the Union. Perhaps his opinion of me may be just. It may do good. I would not have him change a word. Lincoln's remarks that night were repeated to Sherman, and they made such an impression on him that he omitted from his speech the criticism on Lincoln. Colonel J. W. Forney relates a characteristic incident of Mr. Lincoln's generosity to an adversary. He says that one afternoon in February or March of 1865, he was startled by a visit from his old friend Washington McLean of the Cincinnati Inquirer. I have called, Mr. McLean said, to ask you to do me a favor I shall never forget, and you must do it. I will not take no for an answer. You and you alone can serve me. Well, old friend, said Colonel Forney, you know I will serve you if I can. What is it? Now, don't be alarmed when I tell you that Roger A. Pryor is in Fort Lafayette, having been captured within our lines, and that I want you to get him out. Roger A. Pryor of Petersburg, Roger A. Pryor, who fired on Sumter, Roger A. Pryor, the hot spur of Congress. Yes, and your old coadjutor of the Washington Union, when you were both Democrats there. He went into the rebellion, is now a prisoner, and I appeal to you to go with me to the President and ask his release. As there was no denying his impetuous friend, Colonel Forney got into his carriage, and they were soon at the White House. Mr. McLean was introduced, and it was soon found that Mr. Lincoln knew all about him and his paper. He told his story, which was patiently heard. Colonel Forney followed with a statement of his former relations with Mr. Pryor, and said that he thought an act of liberality to such a man, and on a request from a frank political opponent like Washington McLean, would be worthy of the head of a great nation. "'Let me see,' said Mr. Lincoln, as he fixed his spectacles and turned to a little drawer in the desk behind him. "'I think I have a memorandum here that refers to some good thing done by General Pryor to a party of our Pennsylvania boys who were taken prisoners in an attack upon the Petersburg fortifications. And with that he took out from a small package a statement signed by the men who had enjoyed the hospitality of General Pryor on the occasion referred to. He had, it appears, 
given them food from his larder at a time when his own family were in a most desperate condition for provisions the man who can do such kindness to an enemy said the president cannot be cruel and revengeful then he wrote some lines on a card which he handed to mr mclean with the remark i think that will do at any rate it is all that i can give you and they took their leave going downstairs they looked with amazement at the writing on the card which read thus to colonel burke commanding at fort lafayette new york please release general roger a pryor who will report to colonel forney on capitol hill a lincoln report to colonel forney colonel forney who was bubbling over with resentment against the southern leaders who had hindered his advancement when buchanan was elected president but there was no changing the order so mr mclean dashed off in the next train to new york the happiest democrat in the united states and two days after he walked into colonel forney's office with the prisoner general pryor took the upper rooms of colonel forney's lodgings and was his guest for more than a week during which time he was visited by all the chivalry male and female of the vicinage the president enjoyed the fact that colonel forney had such good company and thaddeus stevens his neighbor habitually accosted him in the morning with a grim salute how's your democratic friend and brother this morning colonel forney had to admit that a more courteous gentleman he had never met than general pryor and did him the justice to say that he expressed the most fervent gratitude to mr lincoln for his kindness end of chapter fourteen his magnanimity read by john greenman